0: So go to squarespace.com/stuff right now, and you will face a free trial. And when you get ready to launch, use our offer code stuff, and then you'll save ten percent off your first purchase of a website or domain. How could you go wrong with Squarespace?
1: When I found out I was going to be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that.
2: My relationship with my family, and with my boyfriend, and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing.
3: If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, visit BetterHelp.com stuff today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash stuff.
2: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hey and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant and crickets. It's so weird. But yeah, we're doing this um, ghost style.
3: Yeah. So what happened uh, was, and I didn't you explained to me, but I don't know, maybe my mind was elsewhere and I didn't fully understand. Right. But what happened is guest producer Noel got the record. Uh, he put the mouse on the hamster wheel, got the uh, the computer running, and left.
0: Yeah, and now you're a little freaked out, aren't you? Right. Well,
3: now? it's this is out of close to 800 shows. This is literally the first time it's ever just been you and me in a room. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah, it, it really is, isn't it? It's. I feel like I don't know. I feel like with no one in here, even though no one ever guides us, that we should just I don't know that we're gonna cut up and curse, and mm-hmm. it's like when the teacher has left the room.
0: It feels like there's a vast field. A portal to another dimension to my right where This is so Jerry usually says so.
3: I had no idea what that extra silent human three feet from right. us meant.
0: Yeah. I think it, now this means that we've been put out to pasture. <sighs> wow, this is disconcerting. <sighs> Alright, calm down. I feel like you're gonna like knife me or something. I could right now and no <laughs> one would ever know until we publish the the episode. Nope, no one would ever know. Wow. Man, that's gruesome. All right. This is just weird. Let's let's do it. You ready? Yeah, good choice, by the way. Yeah, well, I don't remember what episode we, we picked this in. We were talking about something and lobbying came up. and We are like, we should just do one on lobbying. Well, here it is.
2: Yeah,
3: it's, it's, I'm glad we're doing this because we'll clear up some misconceptions. Uh, it's not always evil. Just 75% of the time. <laughs> Maybe more. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, I remember when we said we were going to do a lobbying one, we got a lot of emails from lobbyists who were like, please, please, please don't just trash our profession like we ever would. Um, they're, they're like lobbying's actually, it can be a really good thing. And here's why. So we got a lot of feedback before this thing even came out. Yeah. Which hopefully will help us.
3: Well, they're understandably a very defensive group. Yes. Everyone thinks it's just rotten and corrupt across all channels.
0: And again, that's not
3: true.
0: 75% (laughs) is rotten to the core. Um, and the reason I and just about everyone else walking the planet thinks that lobbyists are
3: rotten, is because of some very high-profile cases, like, remember Jack Abramoff? Who can forget what a, and I usually don't publicly Uh, trash uh, people, uh, mm -hmm. but that guy was a pile of garbage. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's really no, I was trying to find some other way around it. It's like, no, he was awful. Yeah. And just ripped people off unabashedly. Ripped off Indian tribes. Bribed officials. Bribed people, pocketed money
0: and he was a highly highly successful lobbyist so turned on people successful. he was working for. Yeah.
3: He was he's not a good fella.
0: No, but again, he was a successful lobbyist. He was at the top yeah. of his, of his field for many years actually. Um and it wasn't until 2006 when he was convicted of I believe like bribery and
3: corruption and all sorts of stuff. Tax evasion, uh, all, all kinds of stuff, yeah.
0: Um and I ended up serving uh, three three years I think. He did three three years in the pokey.
3: Yeah, and supposedly had to pay a lot of restitution and tax fines. Yeah. But who knows how that stuff works out. No one ever follows up. Right. To see, you know, we'd say, oh, he got a, he's supposed to pay all these people back. Sure, it happened. Yeah. Who knows? He probably found a loophole to work <laughs>
0: on. He's <laughs> probably know. working on a lawsuit against us right this moment, Chuck. Oh. Uh,
3: can you not publicly call someone garbage? <laughs> I think you can. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we'll, can we, we'll find out. Can we read this uh, opening... Statement from uh, 1869.
0: Yeah, because I think it makes a pretty good point that Jack Abramoff wasn't the first despised
3: lobbyist. No, this is uh, written by Emily Edson Briggs, who was a uh, Washington, D.C. newspaper correspondent um, at a time where there weren't a lot of women doing that, which is kind of cool.
0: No, I think she was the first allowed into the congressional press room.
3: Yeah, they said let her in. She'll never say anything bad. <laughs> Cuz we gave her this job. Yeah. And she's like you fell for my big cookies plan. So, uh, <laughs> she wrote a column t- called The Dragons of the Lobby, so you probably know where this is headed. And uh the opening line of the column said, "Winding in and out through the long, devious basement passage, crawling through the corridors, trailing its slimy length from gallery to committee room, at last it lies stretched at full length on the floor of the Congress." This dazzling reptile, this huge, scaly serpent of the lobby, that could have been our Halloween episode. It really could have. Maybe we should gussy that up. I think we should with horror. <laughs> a effects. little
0: bit of sound effects, yeah.
3: <laughs> that was in 1869.
0: Yeah, not very flattering. Um, and it was actually it did it did come um, at a time when lobbying and lobbyists were really um, getting a, a chokehold on um, on Congress, on legislation on sweetheart deals from the federal government. Um, but lobbying goes further back than that, and lobbyists have been despised even further back than that, as a matter of fact.
3: Yeah, and it's, uh, again, it's something this article makes. I thought this is a really well-written article, actually.
0: Yeah, this was Dave Ruse's article. And Ruse, nice he, job. He did a good job.
3: Um, he points out that the, the knee-jerk reaction for your average person might be to say, just make it all illegal get rid of the lobby because right. it's awful yeah but uh he makes a good point that it is it is necessary the first amendment uh in our own constitution says the right of the people to petition the government for a redress of grievances is necessary and constitutional and mandatory yeah and that's what lobbyists do is uh it's not always a huge corporation a lot of times they'll speak for The Girl Scouts or the Boy Scouts yeah, yeah, or, you know, all kinds of special interest groups. And we all have them.
0: So you, me, everyone listening in America Mm -hmm. uh, has a constitutional right to go and petition Congress to say, hey, guys, you guys aren't paying enough attention to government waste or NASA deserves way more funding than you're giving it. Yeah, whatever. whatever. You can go do that. That's lobbying technically. But unfortunately, almost from the beginning, uh... Corporate and big business special interest groups figured out a way to basically exploit that to their, to their own benefit.
3: Yeah. And it's, uh, Ruse also points out, and we'll get to this later, uh, which is one of the big problems. It's necessary because Congress and their staff don't have time to, uh, that's, well, again, we'll get to that later. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I don't want to spoil it. All right. But they don't have time to go through the myriad requests and, and, uh, information, deluge of information Mm -hmm. that's necessary to make an educated decision. Right. And uh, so much so that uh, Senator John F. Kennedy in 1956 said that we are, in many cases, expert technicians capable of, not we are, I'm sorry, lobbyists. He wasn't a lobbyist. Are, in many cases, I'm sorry, are, uh, in many cases, (laughs) expert technicians capable of examining complex and difficult subjects in a clear, understandable fashion. So that's the reason we need them in many cases, is to literally explain stuff to Congress people and staff strapped for time and resources.
0: It should be said, though, that um, when Kennedy wrote that in the mid-50s, lobbying was not much of a thing. It had, like, it was established. It had been established for a couple hundred years. People hated lobbyists. There were huge um, lobbyist scandals in the Gilded Age from the Civil War to the 19th century. But in the mid-50s, lobbying was not a huge thing. It wasn't. So um, what he said, though, was accurate, and it still is accurate today. If you are an incoming congressperson, um, you make your name both to your constituency and in your party – by getting bills passed by coming up with bills and passing them right yeah
3: look at all the work i accomplished
0: right and then if you um get enough you may uh, end up on a nice committee maybe even a committee chair and then eventually a party leader and all that's because you introduced legislation that was favored and got passed the thing is you don't have the time or the staff to research and write legislation no so you have to you have to Turn to lobbyists, lobbying groups and say, Hey, you guys are literally experts on this topic. Yeah. I need your help. Uh, educate me, help me write this. And then, um, we'll, we'll be friends. The problem is, is there's not a, there's not a special interest group, like you said, whether it's the Girl Scouts or whether it's, uh, the, uh, the Chamber of Commerce. Yeah. That doesn't have a slant that isn't going to try to slant that legislation in their favor. So that means that the laws that are written in this country today are the legislative equivalents of advertorials. Yeah. You know, kind of thin on actual content and really heavy on stuff that benefits the the corporations running the show. You know who would make good lobbyists? Who? They're in
3: this room right now. Oh, you think so? I was just thinking like generally unbiased research presented. Yeah. So someone can make a decision. Yeah. That's kind of what we do. Yeah. Except we're not paid like lobbyists. No, we're not. <laughs> lobbyists make a lot of dough. No. Uh In fact, in 2014, lobbyists, and these are people that are officially registered as lobbyists, which we'll get to. There are a lot more people mm-hmm. doing lobby-esque work yes. that aren't officially registered. But official registered lobbyists uh, were paid out two, $3.24 billion in 2014. And that is only divided among, uh, how many people was it? About 10,600 people. What? Are you kidding? That's how many registered lobbyists there were. Right. And this year. And that's, but again, just the registered ones. From a high of about 14 and change And uh, when was that? 2006 or seven, Yeah, and then 2007.
0: 2000, the 2007 changes came along. And it's not because there are fewer lobbyists. They're, they're, that just gave rise to people or, or gave people the ability to be like, oh, I'm not a lobbyist anymore. Because here's the thing. If you are a registered lobbyist, you are subject to some very strict ethical guidelines, yeah. legal guidelines, scrutiny of your business practices. Sure. And there's a lot of stuff you can't do. You just, you're just completely outlawed from doing certain things if if you can just skirt the definition of a lobbyist it's like open season man it's the wild west on capitol hill for you yeah and you can make as much money as you possibly can while doing the same things just not having to register as a lobbyist all right but that's a lot of teasing This is the, like, but this is the current state of uh, the American legislative process. Our legislators rely on special interest groups almost entirely to tell them what they need to know Mm -hmm. uh, from their slant and then actually writing the legislation for them to go take to Congress and be like, look what I got. Yeah. I'm going to make my name with this. All right. There's one other thing too that we should say. Yeah. And this is a, this is one reason why lobbying is so pernicious. Um, Lobbyists also serve as major fundraisers for the very politicians that they're lobbying.
3: Yeah. You know? Like, I didn't, uh, give them money. I just held a fundraiser that raised four and a half million dollars. Right. At, you know, $3,000 a plate. But hey, they and don't. They, they gave them the money. Right. <laughs> they
0: don't owe me anything. Right. I'm just doing this because I'm a patriotic citizen of the United States. Yeah. Uh, and I'll see you Monday, Senator.
3: And, and I like to overcharge for salmon.
0: Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So that's the current state, everybody. Let's go back to the beginning because lobbyists have been around uh, basically as long as America has.
3: Yeah. Let's take a little break and then we'll uh, we'll get to the tease stuff and uh, start off with a little bit of history.
0: And right now, go to squarespace.com stuff for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code stuff to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace.
1: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future.
3: All right. Uh, there's some misconceptions about the history of the word itself. Yes. Uh, Lore says that it was invented uh, in the Willard Hotel in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. in that lobby, when uh, Ulysses Grant would kick back and have a drink like he so liked to do uh, and would get disgusted by uh, what he called those damn lobbyists. That were hanging out there. Yeah, asking them for stuff. Gimme, gimme, gimme. Yeah. And President. while, uh, that may have, um, that may have given rise to the term popularity wise here, but you can trace it back to England, uh, in the 1640s when they talked about the lobby in the house of commons. Yeah. Where you could go right up to your representatives and, in, in your cute little wig and say, here's what I think you should do. Right. And here's some, uh, here's some good old fashioned English pounds in your pocket.
0: Yeah. And, and I mean, that's always just gone with it, part and parcel. Yeah. You know? Uh, if not outright bribery, at least favors or quid pro quo or tip for tat or- Football um, tickets.
3: The Jekyll and Hyde. Beyonce tickets. All sorts of stuff. Yeah. First class, or not first class, no one flies first class. I'm talking about the Learjet, the true first class. Oh, yeah. The private jet.
0: Didn't they do away with first class and now it's just called business class because of class resentment in the United States?
3: Yeah, and now they've, uh, well, it depends on the airline. Yeah. There's all sorts of new rules and special things you can pay for. All right. So, uh, in the United States, uh, from the very first session of Congress, there were lobbying efforts and people, uh, treating Congress, uh, I'm going to say congressmen for this one because this was in 1789. Yes. We're going to say congressperson for later on. Right. The women
0: were, were at home brewing beer in their right.
3: households, <laughs> uh, but they were plying congressmen with uh, treats and dinners, and uh, that was a direct quote from uh, Pennsylvania Senator William Maclay from the very first session of Congress. He was saying, "Yeah, they're lobbyists here. They're basically uh, trying to bribe people. They're trying to stall the Tariff Act of 1789, which established um,
0: Congress's ability to basically extract." duties and taxes on goods in the United States yeah. in order to support the government.
3: Let's go out to dinner instead.
0: And the New York merchants were like, you don't want to do that. <laughs> no. Let me get you hammered three ways from Sunday. Yeah. What
3: are you doing later? Yeah, I'll tell you what you're doing. You're going to finish a cask of <laughs> rum in one sitting. Uh Then apparently the Bank of the United States was one of the first big uh corrupt organizations as far as literally having politicians in their pocket yeah. paying them money.
0: Yeah. like um the United States used to have things like the, the, like a an actual centralized bank. Yeah. And Andrew Jackson came along it's like this thing is just way too corrupt.
3: Yeah. We put, need to get rid of it and put me on your money.
0: Yeah, but the 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 scandals associated with it were things like um the the National Bank had on its board as board members who were being paid by the bank sitting congressmen who were writing legislation
3: in favor of the bank. Yeah, this quote is the best. Massachusetts Senator Daniel Webster sent a letter to the Bank of the United States that said this, among other things. Uh, Since I arrived here, I have had an application to be concerned professionally against the bank, which I've declined, of course, although I believe my retainer has not been renewed or refreshed as usual. Uh, if it be wished that my relation to the bank should be continued, eh, it may be well to send me the usual retainer. Mm-hmm. In other words, I've noticed that you're not paying me now. People are telling me to write legislation <laughs> against you. I'm turning them down yeah, but for you, now. You may want to send that money again if you would like this. Love, Daniel. Yeah, you know, like he flat out said, the the bribes have sort of dried up, I've noticed. Right. So why don't you start sending those again? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah.
3: History. So you talked about the Gilded Age, uh, post-Civil War till the close of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, we like to think that America's railroads were built on grit and determination. No. Yep. But in fact, it was rife with insider deals and uh, scandal. Right. What was it called? The Credit sure. Mobilier scandal? Yeah, I looked into this a little bit. It's
0: mind-boggling. Basically, um, Union Pacific It's mind-boggling Railroad-
3: how overt it was.
0: Yeah, you know? but but even just like – it was not just crooked in one way. It was crooked in a number of ways. It yeah. formed one big, huge, crooked thing that Congress was involved in. The Union Pacific Railroad started a uh, company that served as the sole agent of building and managing the, the Union Pacific Railroad. Yeah. Okay? Um, and then they issued stock in this stuff, and they used Credit Mobil- Mobilier – and um, Union Pacific itself to basically overcharge and overpay one another mm-hmm. so that the value of the stock went through the roof. Okay, so it was a stock massaging scheme to was, begin with. It was like an insider deal with yourself. Right, to raise the value artificially of your stock, right? Yes. And then they took these these shares in this company and started handing them out to Congress at a discounted price. Mm-hmm. So all Congress had to do was go sell them on the market for their face value, which was, again, artificially inflated, and they made a bunch of cash. And they were taking these as bribes for giving, like, um, land grants or breaking treaties with Native Americans so that the Union Pacific Railroad could um, build their railroad across the western states.
3: Yeah, and this was uh, they did this because, believe it or not, at the time there wasn't a lot of private investors ponying up money for this railroad because it was sort of a new thing. and It was risky. Yeah, they didn't know. Although it was a great idea, they didn't know, like all investors, what they care about is getting their money back in quick fashion. Right. And they just didn't know if that was going to be possible. Yeah. So. And I mean, there's
0: definitely something to be said for the federal government to step in and be like, look, we think that this is really going to help things out. We really want to fund it. But does it have to be totally fraught with corruption while that happens? Yeah. You know?
3: No, is no. the answer. Not yet. Uh, and then there was the famous uh, Gilded Age lobbyist, Sam Ward, who um, he basically invented the social lobby. So while he wouldn't, we'll get into direct lobby versus social lobby, but social lobby is basically, in Sam Ward's case, he was a great chef and he was like, I'm going to throw these great parties. I'm going to have great food and fine wine. I'm going to invite uh, special interest groups and corporation heads mm-hmm. and politicians and get them in the same room. But we're not going to talk about that stuff directly. We're just all going to get hammered together and have a great time.
0: Become friends.
3: <laughs> that was that was his job. Friends do things for one another, right? Yeah. Well, I don't think we ever even said what K Street was, by the way.
0: K Street is literally K, the letter K Street, yeah. where all just about every
3: lobby in the country has an office. Yeah. So. That explains that if people are out there going, "What the heck is K Street?" Well, yeah,
0: right? you're right. But it's like saying um, Madison Avenue when you refer exactly. to um, advertising. Yeah, firms. or Wall Street. Yeah. Um, so lobbying just kind of after the Gilded Age, America was sick to death of lobbying and lobbyists and didn't want to have anything to do with it. Yeah. Um, so lobbying went didn't go away, but it, it fell to the wayside a little bit. It was still a thing um, throughout the 20th century. It just kind of waxed and waned in the mid-40s, I believe, Congress was like, we actually kind of need these guys, so let's set up some rules for dealing with them. Mm-hmm. Um, because at this time already, what John Kennedy was writing about was true. Yeah, You had a brain drain going on from Capitol Hill to K Street, where people would go and um, become an aide to a, a senator or a congressperson yeah. and make contacts, get a, a little bit of experience, and then after a couple of years, they would move on over to K Street to a lobbying firm, make anywhere between five to ten times what they were as the congressional aide. And um, K Street was sucking the talent away from Congress. And so these Congress people in the 40s said, hey, um, we need to work with these people because we need them. So let's make up some rules. Even still, lobbying was nothing like you would recognize it today. It wasn't until the 70s and 80s, when business did an about-face of dealing with the government. Up to that point, it was like, government, stay, just stay out of our business. Yeah, That's the lobbying we want to do, is to keep you off of our backs, keep you from regulating our stuff, just stay out of our business. Yeah, And then, at some point, and I'm not exactly sure who figured this out, but some lobbyists convinced corporations, like, hey, guys, you're doing this all wrong. You guys could get mind-boggling amounts of money yeah. from the government In the form of subsidies or great contracts or sweetheart deals just by using our services. Right. And lobbying exploded. Yeah, and we'll
3: just take comparatively a tiny bit of that. Right. Even though it's a ton of money for individual lobbyists, it's nothing to these corporations.
0: Right, exactly. And I, yeah, like the, the Dave Ruse gave a really great example of, um, Northrop Grumman, Grumman in, uh, in 2012 or something like that, I believe. Thunder Mifflin? Yeah they spent 176 million dollars from on lobbying from in 14 years from 1998 to 2012 which that's nothing to them because in that time in 2012 itself northrop grumman uh got 176 million dollar uh, or no 189 million dollar
3: contract for a cybersecurity system for the DOD yeah, that's so that nothing.
0: that I, one contract <laughs> paid for 14 years yeah. of lobbying expenses
3: right yeah and then they got a 1.7 billion dollar contract to build five drones. Right.
0: And, and that's just Northrop Grumman. Like, you yeah. can't really pick on them. The reason why we we called them out is because during 1998, 2012, they were the ninth biggest spender on lobbying. Yeah. Not just corporations, but industry as well. Um, General Electric was the um, the single entity that spent the most.
3: Yeah, this... Um, as I far got, as a corporation goes. Uh, there's a great website if you want just good information and stats called... OpenSecrets.org. Uh-huh. Yeah. And this past year, 2014, uh, the top ten spenders were uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is always number one. Right. By a long shot. Yeah. Because they represent a lot of businesses. Uh, the National Association of Realtors was number two. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield was number three. Uh, American Hospital Association, four. American Medical Association, five. I'm seeing a trend here. In right. medicine. I wonder why. Uh, National Association of Broadcasters, National Cable and Telecom, Comcast. Again, it's you can literally look at the years where there's the most spending and what's going on right. in those industries. Yeah, uh, and then Google and Boeing round out the top ten. Yeah, at just a sixteen million
0: each. And so, and I mean, like the, the amount of money spent has, um, I believe, tripled in the last few years. Right? Yeah, I think so. So. So this is fairly new, but it's not new. It's basically a return to the lobbying of the Gilded Age. Yeah, the amount of money, attention, time, questionable stuff that's been going on is is just a replay of what happened a uh, hundred something years ago, right? Yeah. Um, and one of the reasons that we've we've it, it's become so rampant, it's been ratcheted up so much. You can actually lay it at the feet of Newt Gingrich. So Newt Gingrich chuckers uh was Speaker of the House in the 90s when Clinton was president, if you'll remember. Sure. And he decided that Congress was doing too much. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. So he cut staffs, which yeah. means that lawmakers um, that, that were able to – that did have enough of a staff or enough resources to write their own legislation – could definitely could not any longer. He also cut staff at some uh, resources that are dedicated to providing research for Congress, like the Congressional Budget Office, the Congressional Research Service, all of these things um, that have been built up in response to dealing with lobbyists from like the 40s on uh, were cut by Gingrich. And now all of a sudden, our our lawmakers are relying strictly on lobbyists for money.
3: Yeah, and that's there's a direct correlation. I know people, you know, you hear about government spending, let's cut government spending, which in theory sounds great. Sure, right. let's cut government spending. Mm-hmm. But what that means is now you don't have staff to do unbiased research and get the facts. And like you said, you've got lobbyists to do that.
0: Right, exactly. And uh, the 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 idea behind that tactic by Gingrich, if, if it was just based on I'm cutting government spending by cutting jobs or I think government's doing too much, there's actually a misstep because another um, senator from Oklahoma, his name escapes me right now, he had the Congressional Budget Office. Do an annual report starting in 2011, and they found that the Congressional Budget Office found that for every dollar spent on the Congressional Budget Office, yeah. the Congressional Budget Office managed to come up with ninety dollars of recommended cuts to government waste. Wow! So for every dollar you spent, you made you saved eighty nine dollars just from the Congressional Budget Office. So cutting their staff is the opposite of what you want to do. Right? If you're against like bloated, wasteful government.
3: Yeah. It's pretty interesting how it works out.
0: It specifically is interesting as far as Newt Gingrich goes too, because him cutting Congress's ability to not rely on lobbyists really left a sour taste in a lot of people's mouths during the 2012 primaries. Yeah,
3: because he was like he refused to admit that he was a lobbyist. Well, yeah, and he's he's not registered as a lobbyist. What he has is a uh, well, one of the things he does he has a healthcare consulting firm. Where you can pay $200,000 to become a member, quote-unquote, which you're not a client. You're a member. It's a membership group. Right. So it's – and he's not the only one. I mean, I think they have in here uh, – they call it the revolving door, basically. When you leave your position as a congressperson or a senator, right. you go directly to the lobby. Mm-hmm. Uh, the New York Times says there are more than 400 former legislators who worked as lobbyists in the past decade. It's yeah. just like – Let me go make some real money now.
0: Not just legislators either. Like um, there was very famously a guy who was running the um, uh, the Pentagon, I believe, Ed Aldridge, and he was a longtime critic of Boeing. And then Boeing hired him. And on his way out, he he approved a three billion dollar contract to Boeing. (laughs) That's the revolving door at work. Yeah. There was a a Massachusetts representative named uh, William Delahunt, and um, he took a job lobbying for a wind project that he had just earmarked a bunch of money for right before he left yeah so i mean this revolving door people say like well let's just shut the revolving door and it is a it's a proposal but at the same time if you do that then then you're anti-job and you you couldn't you can't even appear anti-job so there's other solutions that i think are better for dealing with the the lobbying crisis i guess you could call it
3: yeah and uh well we'll get to that later that great article you sent um you know what show actually does a really great job realistically with this is, uh, Veep. Uh, I haven't seen a second of that. It's fantastic, man. Yeah. I mean, it really shows Didn't you like- Did she win
0: the Emmy for best actress?
3: Yeah, she won and Veep won and I think the writing team won. Good. I think it's the best written show on TV right now, but, um, or best written comedy. Oh, have you seen Narcos yet? No. Oh. I'm gonna check that out. Okay. But, uh, Veep is really, even though it's a comedy, really like shows that everything in DC is just about deals being made right like you know well you do this for me and I'll give you support on this bill right and they're pulling that bill and what did that lobby say because they were my friend right and it's all it's all just it's such an insider's game yeah it's staggering yeah and, and that's a comedy written by uh, English people which is Is I that right? was weird yeah the producers got there and they're all like from from England wow and, and that's I don't know for some reason we're I thought, guess it's <laughs> <that's> so interesting <laughs> yeah. and they even in their Emmy speech said, you know, it's kind of funny to be able to make fun of the American political system, mm-hmm. being English folks. But yeah. thank you for this award for that. Uh, all right, so let's talk a little bit about, we keep saying registered lobbyists. Uh, since 1876, Congress has required that all professional lobbyists register uh, with the Office of the Clerk of the House. And uh, since 1995, with the Lobbying Disclosure Act in 2007, Honest Leadership and Open Government Act of 2007, uh, they narrowly defined a lobbyist uh, as someone who is, one, paid by client, mm-hmm. uh, two, services include more than one lobbying contact, right. and three, whose lobbying activities constitute 20% or more of their time on behalf of that client during any three-month period. So that's actually,
0: it seems broad, that's actually a really narrow definition of a lobbyist.
3: Yeah, and it's so narrow, as it turns out, that it's really easy to skirt those rules and not register because... There are many ways. You can say – you can really budget your time and say, no, I worked 20.9% in this three-month period for right. this firm. Yeah. Or I have so many people I work for, I only spend about 10 for 15% of my time.
0: Right. Or if you're like
3: – On any one uh, group. Right. Or
0: if you're like Newt Gingrich, you're you're not working for a client. It says client. I've got members. So I'm doing all this, but it's for members, not clients.
3: Or if it's educational, it's not called lobbying. So <laughs> right. Hey, let me just hire this former senator, pay him a lot of money to go around and give speeches on education that are really trying to generate interest in legislation.
0: Or to to educate the government on why. Um, the $37.5 billion in fossil fuel subsidies that shelled out in 2014 is a good thing to redo and then double. Right, But that's just education.
3: That's not lobbying. So those are just some of the ways you can skirt officially registering as a lobbyist.
0: And actually, Chuck, so you said that that was from the 2007 act total? It was 95 in 2007, right? Yeah, two different acts. And in 2007, when they added, I guess they added that third one, about the 20% the time measure? Yeah uh like 3000 lobbyists deregistered. Yeah, it's they're so like, easy oh, to skirt scur- loophole.
3: Good. Yeah, they're like, "Oh, really? Yeah. All I have to do is account for my time in this way and all the rules
0: don't apply to me."
3: It's pretty amazing.
0: And so as a matter of fact, um the American Bar Association said if you just just get rid of that third one, the time thing, that would help a lot. Yeah. And actually when Congress first started to deal with um lobbying, uh well, I shouldn't say first because it was the 19th century, but in 1945 or six, when they um, passed an act about lobbying rules, yeah, um, they said that a lobbyist, a reg- someone who had to register as a lobbyist was anyone who aids in the passage or defeat of legislation. That's it. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure there's loopholes in there and ways around that, too, but it was much,
3: much more vague. Which, in fact, would sound, it's counterintuitive, but mm-hmm. that's actually better. Right. To be more vague in the description, yeah, because you can't skirt it as easy. So let's let's
0: take a break, and then we'll talk about um, all of the stuff that lobbyists do, including some good stuff too.
1: This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global.
3: All right, uh, lobbyists. Who are lobbyists? What do they do? They are full time, uh, as Dave puts it, full time advocates for their clients. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. There's no job description you're going to get, but you better be a people person. You better have great. You better have a stuffed Rolodex. You better. You better be good at networking. Be super good at networking. Uh,
0: Smooth talker.
3: Yeah, you, you should throw a good party. Uh huh. Be good at fundraising. Yeah, um and like we said, you got to know a lot of good people. You got to be a great communicator and, and persuasive.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: One might say slick. Slick I think is
0: probably <laughs> right. But um that and that I imagine that those are good qualities to have in just about any, but I also have the impression that there are lobbyists who are just like just strictly grinding out research and stuff like that.
3: Yeah, I think there's different types of lobbyists. Some sure. are probably like there's the glad handers. Yeah, like the front person, maybe. And then there's like wonks, people who are literally like
0: technical policy experts on a certain topic. Yeah. They know the ins and outs. They know both sides of it. They know what senators care about it. Um, they know what Congress people could be persuaded, maybe. Like they know everything about this particular issue.
3: Yeah. And like up to the minute, uh, they have to be really up on yeah. the very, very latest uh, policies and laws. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have to be. Experts, like you said. Right. Like inside and out because they get paid a ton of money to, to do that.
2: Yeah.
0: And there's typically three kinds of lobbying that people undertake. Again, whether it's the Girl Scouts or Greenpeace or, um, the Chamber of Commerce or whoever. Um, there's direct lobbying, indirect lobbying, and then grassroots lobbying. And they probably any lobbying group takes part in all a combination of all these
3: yeah direct lobbying is when you're when you can get a meeting with a congressperson or senator or their aides yeah and you sit down with their staff or them and say uh, I'm experienced clearly because I'm in the room with you and here's here's what we think is a good piece of legislation right it's good for the country yeah wink wink yeah so that's direct lobbying uh, indirect is if you um, well what's the difference between indirect and social aren't they kind of the same yeah, it's the same. All right, so that's, like we said, the uh, uh, Sam uh, Ward which yeah. would throw parties. The king of lobbying. Yeah, he invented the, the, king s- of the lobby. social lobbying, and that's still true today. You throw a big uh, swanky D.C. cocktail hour yeah. and get people in the same room, just connecting folks. Yeah. That's uh, indirect lobbying. Goosing them up with a little uh, scotch, maybe, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you're like, you just sit back and you're like, yeah. This is working. Look at them talking to each other. I love myself. (laughs) And then there's grassroots
0: lobbying, which is kind of misleading, actually, because it can be employed by uh, deeply entrenched, deep-pocketed interests. Yeah. But, you know, it still appears grassroots and folksy. Things like um, paying somebody who's uh, an expert in a field or... Um, a, a recognized figure, maybe a, a former um, Congressperson or whatever, to write an op-ed. Yeah, and I mean, name recognition counts for just about anything. So I- even op-eds, and if if somebody's saying, if a former Treasury Secretary is like, "This is a really bad idea, we shouldn't pass this legislation," that's going to inform voters' um, minds. Yeah, kind of it also is a huge message to the legislators who are also reading it that like the Washington Post published this, so uh, a lot of people just read right. it. You may want to listen to what I just said.
3: Yeah, or grassroots in the purest sense of the word, in the more traditional sense, is uh could be a, a small little NGO. That's mm-hmm. all they can afford right. is grassroots campaigns. And uh sadly it's it's uh the dog that barks the loudest is the one that's gonna get the most attention. Sure. And you're barking the loudest if you have the resources. Yeah. Uh, to, I guess, get a bunch of dogs barking at once,
0: which is a really good point, Chuck. Because, uh, and this this article goes to great pains to make it clear that, you know, n- not all lobbying is bad. That lobbying in and of itself isn't necessarily bad, um, and, and that there are plenty of public interest groups that are um, dedicated to serving the common good that engage in lobbying. So yeah. it shouldn't be outlawed. It shouldn't be cut off. We should figure out how to fix it. Um, The thing is, is they found that for every dollar that a union and public interest group combined spends, corporations or um, big business spend $34. Wow. 95 of the top 100 spenders were all corporate or corporate interests. Um, So the field is very much skewed toward whoever has the most money or whoever
3: is willing to spend the most. Uh so to be to register as a lobbyist which was uh required like I said since 1876 and then a few years after that they required that members of the press register <laughs> because uh with the House and Senate uh because they were had lobbyists posing as uh journalists right so they had to take care of that pretty early on but if you are registered uh there are some things that you have to do according to the law um, well first of all you can't give gifts uh, blatantly give gifts
0: Yeah, that's one of the things that got Abramoff in trouble.
3: All sorts of ways around this, of course, but you can't blatantly give gifts. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have to register – you have to file quarterly uh, reports that detail the contacts you've made with uh, elected officials. You have to disclose how much money you were paid. Uh, You have to file semi-annual reports that list contributions uh, made to political campaigns.
0: See, that I, – I have a question about that because from what I understand if in on the federal level, if you're a registered lobbyist, you, you cannot contribute to a political campaign.
3: Yeah, it, maybe it uh, has to do with like these $3,000 plate dinners or something. I don't know. Yeah. I, I wasn't sure about that either actually. Yeah. But you mentioned the American Bar Association. They uh, – a lot of attorneys are lobbyists um, – off and on during their career. My uncle was actually a lobbyist. Is that right? Yeah. Well, congressman. My congressman uncle.
0: Really? He went through the revolving door, huh?
3: Yeah. I don't know much about it, but, um. Oh man, you gotta ask him. Yeah. I should. And I will say this, even though we, we're not on the same side of the political spectrum, which I won't even say who's who. How oh, about he's that? a Democrat, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, he's a good dude and an honest person. Uh huh. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Even though we don't agree on things, I always, Felt like he, you know, he's not taking kickbacks. He's not one of those guys, and I really believe that. Right, he's a man pure of heart. And so,
0: so in no way disparaging your uncle for going through the revolving door. Right. One of the problems with that revolving door is not just that it causes this brain drain from um, Capitol Hill to the lobbying companies yeah. that, or the law law firms, but um, it also makes. Congress not really interested in passing any kind of lobbying reform or revolving door reform Yeah, because pretty soon their term's going to be up and they can yeah. go get that job exactly. over there. Exactly.
3: Yeah. Because you don't, as a public servant, I mean, you don't make a lot of money. No, you don't. And especially, well, we'll get to this in a second. Okay. All right. Uh, but finishing on the ABA, <laughs> um, the American Bar Association has a real interest in trying to keep lobbying uh, as above board as possible because a lot of them want to be lobbyists and they don't want to be tarnished, and right. so, uh, like you said earlier, they think the biggest thing you can do is to separate and have really strict lines drawn between fundraising and lobbying. They yeah. think that's where it's the most corrupt. Yes.
0: So get rid of the time—the time requirement, the twenty percent of your time to be a registered lobbyist. Yeah. And just
3: separate fundraising from from. Um, Lobbying. Yeah, I get the idea that that's where most of the hinky stuff is going on.
0: So the thing is, like that makes sense, but it's also kind of like trying to remove a hornet's nest by picking the hornets out one by one. Yeah, not the best idea. Um, you and, need
3: to smash it and set it on fire.
0: Pretty much, <laughs> and then pee on the ashes. Actually, I believe you should leave a hornet's nest. You should never
3: destroy a hornet's nest.
0: So uh, I, I know. You know apex predators and all. I get you. Um, so the uh, the the other idea to just shut the revolving door or to just outlaw lobbying altogether, again, not only is that a bad idea, especially if you just did it wholesale out of the gate. Yeah, you but, can't do that. But it's also unconstitutional, right? Yeah. So we read this really great article. Um, Man, that was good. In Washington Monthly. So who wrote this thing? Uh, Lee Drutman, or Drutman, probably Drutman, and Stephen Tellis. They <laughs> wrote it in the Washington Monthly. It's called A New Agenda for Political Reform.
3: It was a great article, lengthy, but it just and it's, it, it made really good sense to me. Yeah, and it's not too wonky, but I
0: mean, these guys clearly know what they're talking about. Yeah, these
3: people. The, the, the long and short of it, and what they think is the problem, is what we touched on earlier, which is staffing uh, of Congressional offices has been cut and slashed so much, Mm -hmm. and there's so much more information now Mm -hmm. to ingest than there used to be. Yeah. They just can't do it. There are not the resources to do it. So we have no choice but to turn to lobbyists to act as the experts and to write legislation. Right. So they propose, and we have some stats in here, actually, uh, that I thought were pretty striking. Uh, In the 80s, around 1980 is when they started cutting everything. Uh, the Government Accountability Office and the Congressional Research Services, uh, what they do is they provide nonpartisan policy and program analysis to lawmakers. Right. There are 20 percent fewer now than in 1979. And those are the very experts that were dedicated to serving Congress. In a nonpartisan way. So
0: that they had all the information they needed to create legislation to actually make the government operate. 20 percent fewer than the 1970s. Yeah. So gone. Going on, starting in the 80s and then again uh, in the mid-90s, Gingrich cut congressional staff.
3: Yeah, and while this is going on, it's a two-way street. Lobbying is increasing right. by th- – it's staggering how much lobbying has in- increased in money and just uh, human power. And then one of the things about lobbying is that lobbying
0: begets lobbying. The more a lobbyist can get legislation pushed through, the larger the federal register grows – the less ability any given congressperson has to read and ingest and understand federal law. Yeah. So the more they need lobbyists who do understand it.
3: Yeah. And so what you get is uh, what we talked about, the revolving door. Well, actually, that's politicians themselves going to lobby. Well, but there is a brain drain because their aides are being sucked away by K Street as well. There's another cycle where there's no incentive to be a congressional staffer for very long Mm because – you're not going to make much money. I think they said the top 90th percentile uh, of a congressional staff makes 100, 100 thousand dollars a year. Yeah. that's the top 90th percentile. which sounds like six figures. That's good. DC is not cheap. No, and take out taxes and everything. That the median income was 50 grand. Right. So you're making what, like 35 after taxes? Right. You can't live on 35 thousand dollars in DC.
0: And they found that the median income for a lobbyist in Washington, D.C. median is 300 thousand. And that's pretty attractive, especially if yeah. you're in your 20s and all of a sudden can go double or triple your income, like right out of the gate. Well, it's it's the career path, right? Like right.
3: it's laid out there for everyone. Here's what you do: go work on a staff for a little while, make contacts, which is invaluable. Mm-hmm. That's why you do it for not a whole lot of money, right? And then, boom, you can get rich, uh, make a lot of money as a lobbyist.
0: So, Drutman and Tellis um, suggest first and foremost that the solution to the lobbying conundrum that we have now is basically equip Congress with the um, information research and policy experts that they need yeah, and the, that they can get the stuff that they're currently getting from lobbyists. And the way you do that, START, is is just increase salaries. Yep. And they make a really good point that you don't have to necessarily increase the salaries to to be completely on par with what um, K Street's offering. No, of course because not. Because K Street would probably just try to start to outspend and yeah. just raise salaries. Um, but if you can do it so that a person could make a pretty decent living, um, they would possibly choose congressional work over K Street because with congressional work, they're in there. They're like part of this m- machine that's really making decisions and policies and laws that are affecting the country. Rather than working for a law firm that's trying to get some, some legislation passed that will benefit this one corporate client. Yeah. So, so if you just factor in idealism along with a really good salary, these guys say you could attract the right talent that you need.
3: So their recommendation, uh, simply, I mean, it's multifold, but they say double committee staff, triple the money that they make, mm-hmm. and you might be stepping in the right direction.
2: Yeah.
0: And again, if you're like, whoa, 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 that's a lot of taxpayer money. Well again if you if you look at what the CBO alone spending a dollar on the CBO uh-huh. comes up with $90 worth of places to cut government waste uh, these are these are these are good things to spend money on Yeah
3: and you may have a cleaner more legitimate government as yeah. a result too and that's priceless
0: Yeah I mean they made some some uh, excellent case that In the 70s, when the government had a lot of staff that was smart, that had a lot of Mm -hmm. uh, institutional memory and knowledge, that they got things done. Like the Church Committee um, and the Pike Committee, both of which revealed massive, horrible stuff that the CIA was doing, like dosing unsuspecting Americans with LSD. Yeah. That came out of congressional investigations that you do not see any longer. Nope. Um, If you had committee staff that were well-paid, they would hang around. And you would have a lot more laws being passed, a lot more deliberations being passed. Right now, it's all fundraising going on. That's what your legislators do. They get elected, they come to Washington, have their picture taken there, and then they go back out and start raising money for re-election, right? Yeah. And they're raising money from the very people who are working as lobbyists. So, yeah, all you have to do is create good jobs as congressional researchers, and you've got your lobbying problem Largely licked.
3: Yeah, I agree, man. It's, I don't see uh,
0: any problem with this idea.
3: It's it's sad whenever we dig into stuff like this. How uh like I talked about the insiders club, how I don't know. It just seems like it's such a broken, messed up system.
0: It is. There was another thing I read um, about something called rent-seeking, which is where, um, through lobbyists, a corporation will go and just try to get a piece of the pie. Yeah. Not for doing anything, not even necessarily a contract, but just, say, like a subsidy. Yeah. And, like, the fossil fuel subsidies uh, amounted to $37.5 billion in 2014. That was just stuff that the government gave, just money the government gave – oil and other fossil fuel companies just for existing. Right. And that's called rent seeking. It doesn't do anything. They don't they're not producing anything to generate that income. They're spending a bunch of income to go suck it out of the federal budget. Right. And I mean, if you want to talk about wealth redistribution, that's like the the, the clearest
3: version of it you can possibly imagine. Yeah. And that's through lobbying. Yeah. And this is just lobbying like. Don't get me started on things like campaign finance and yeah. all the other ways. That's that, another one we should do. Yeah, I re- actually wrote that article. Um man, how was it? I bet it was depressing. It was depressing and tough and it's probably way out of date. So well, we it, will it update would, it. Yeah, it would need a lot With of our, like uh, updating. Thing. Let's do it. Campaign finance reform,
0: big big thing. Remember our presidential um debates one? That was eye-opening. Remember, there's like a whole commission that like, has a stranglehold on presidential debates Did and we like do they a show only on serve.
3: Yeah. I have no you got to go back like and listen to it. it. was a good one. Most <laughs> of them I'll make. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I oh, have no record. I'll
0: no retweet recollection. it soon. All right. Uh, well, if you want to know more about lobbying, you can type that word in the search bar, at How Stuff Works, and it will bring up this fine article. Uh, and since I said search bar, it's time for listener mail.
3: All right, I'm going to call this uh, binge listening colon, newest to oldest. Uh, Dudes and Jerry, by the way, I labored over that subject line like a publicist, and it's still awful. <laughs> it's pretty bad. Is what Colin said. Pretty uh, bad, Colin. Dudes and Jerry, I've been slowly making my way through the catalog of episodes, and for any new listeners, I'd like to advocate for listening through them from newest to oldest. In other words, reverse order, rather than oldest to newest, which is how I assume most would listen. Uh, while the references to old episodes might be a little confusing... They also build a sense of anticipation once you get there. <laughs> I could see that. For example, I finally listened to the infamous episode on the sun. You made so many references over the years to how bad that episode was mm-hmm. that by the time I got to it, I was literally laughing from beginning to end. <laughs> so it becomes like a comedy episode at that point. Yeah,
0: that's kind of cool.
3: Uh, you could almost hear Chuck's brain sizzling and melting as the episode went on. <laughs> True. <laughs>
0: Mine did, too. Uh,
3: If I didn't have that sense of anticipation, your agony wouldn't have been as sweet. Uh, I like this idea. I think he makes a lot of sense. Yeah, he does. Uh, I dread the day that I run out of episodes and experience the withdrawals, the shakes, the jimmy legs that will inevitably come when I'm jonesing for new stuff. And that is Colin in Orlando. All right, Colin. Great email, terrible subject
0: line, but totally forgivable because of the body. I didn't think it was that bad. It was poopy. Binge listening, newest to oldest? Succinct? I guess. It's a uh,
3: it's just like this the, the, the uh, it's fine. Do right. better, Colin.
0: Uh but great email, Colin.
3: Oh, but if he's listening Has he he hasn't made it all the way back? Well, if he's listening newest to oldest though, does he just make time each week to listen to the newest one and then go back to wherever he oh, left off? Oh phone? I don't know. That's Will a great he even question. hear this?
0: We need to hear a follow up. Oh boy. God knows when he'll hear this, Chuck. We need to contact him directly. I'm feeling a great sense of regret. I feel bad for him because he's just heading straight for disappointment land as he goes further and further back <laughs> in the cattle. Oh man! There's some episodes I'd just like to just redo, which we have done. There's yeah. some I'm like, I'm, well, they were like five minutes, it, and they were cool silly. topics, you know. We should
3: just remove those from the internet.
0: Let's do. Um, I would like to redo the trolley problem one. You and I didn't do it. I did it with Chris Paulette and I it deserves like its own big current modern incarnation of Stuff You Should Know episode. Yeah, we should probably redo all
3: the ones I wasn't on. How about that?
2: That's fine with me. <laughs> you Let's know?
0: do it. We'll call it the Summer
3: of Chuck. Yeah.
0: Uh, if you want to be like Colin and get in touch with us and let us scrutinize your words, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com and as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com
2: on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all new Top Thrill 2 Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple launch vertical speedway and now for a limited time get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited time bundle for just $49.99